so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. The shots that rang out 50 years ago in Memphis, Tennessee, and killed Martin Luther King Jr. are unforgettable. They are also a marker in our nation's evil past. But how has Memphis specifically been affected since that day? Cole Huffman, Steve Gaines, Eli Morris, Bishop Ed Stevens, and J. Lawrence Turner, all serving in Memphis now, talk about how their city is doing 50 years after King's death. Let's join their conversation now. are each and all on this platform Memphis pastors and so we welcome you to our city the city where God by his grace and call has placed us as his servants in his church here to the farthest of my right here is Dr. J. Lawrence Turner he is the senior pastor at Mississippi Boulevard Christian Church seated beside him It's Bishop Ed Stevens. Bishop has been at uh, Golden Gate Cathedral here in Memphis for over 30 years. Dr. Eli Morris has been about that long at Hope Church, where he's the senior associate pastor there. This is Dr. Steve Gaines, who is at Bellevue Baptist Church and is also the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. My name is Cole Huffman, and I'm the senior pastor at First Evangelical Church. Governor Haslam, in his comments of welcome to us, said that uh, this is a wonderful city, but it's complicated, and I think we all understand that. And so, Lessons from Memphis, not everyone in the room is from Memphis, but as we are, and we think about what has been, and we think about the racial and social problems in our city, it really can't be avoided. Other cities may um, try to hide theirs. Ours is a little more open for all the world to see. What do you think other cities and areas around the country can learn from how Memphis has uh, reckoned with realities in the 50 years since Dr. King's assassination? Well, I, can I speak? Sure. I would, I would, I hope they'd learn from our mistakes because we've made plenty, I believe. Yeah. Um, I believe we're at a much better place than we were 50 years ago, and yet we have so much further to go. Um, you know, when I think of Dr. King's death, I think, you know, I think of Atlanta. Atlanta and Memphis, when I was growing up, those were like sister cities. They were the about the same size, they had the same ethos, the same feel. When Dr. King died, I'm afraid that we became paralyzed by his death while they learned to celebrate his life. And so we need to learn to celebrate 
his life and what he stood for a little bit better. And I think we've learned to do that in the last 10 or 15 years much better than we ever have. I mean, if I could jump in, mm-hmm. um, you can learn what to do and you can learn what not to do. I'm new to Memphis, been here five years. And so I believe um, one of the challenges that I think uh, other cities don't need to learn from us is that we have a tendency to run from being proximate to the problems that our city is facing. Um, And so I've seen white flight in a scale here that I've never seen in any other city that I've lived in between the South and the Midwest. I I just think... um, our lack of being proximate to the issues and moving away from them has really been something that I hope no other city would want to um, transport into their context. Can I jump in here? Sure. I think one of the things that needs to take place and that has taken place over the last 50 years, but we need to intensify, is genuine relationships. Uh, I think we have been living in a facade Uh, as though there has really been major changes, and there have been some changes. Of course, there was a time when African-Americans could not get right in the front of the bus, and those obvious changes that we know, but real changes uh, which affect families in our communities. But the only way those changes take place is if we as leaders, and I'm talking to pastors now particularly, uh, get to know each other and genuinely get to know each other. Not this false stuff, I know where you preach, I know where you attended college and all of that. But when you get to know an individual's hurts and why they think and why they respond, why they vote the way that they vote, it helps to put life in a different context. Then I know you from a different light. I'm ready to receive you differently than I know, well, why does he vote like that? He's preaching the same gospel that I'm preaching. So when you develop these relationships, and now uh, relationships are being developed, we are being intentional. There are pastors here, uh, Dr. Gaines and myself and Jason and all of us, we are together, you call, we are on a, on a regular basis. The more that we interact, but you cannot stay with your same race and expect your city to change. Bishop, continuing with 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 that uh, change and systemic injustices, um, Dr. King didn't simply preach to the to the heart about racism, though he did. He also uh, spoke to structures. He was in Memphis to uh, protest the unfair treatment of sanitation workers. So, in your view specifically. What would Dr. King say today about some of the lingering systemic injustices, especially in a city like Memphis? I think Dr. King um, would say, particularly even to white Christians, the idea of being transparent one with another. I believe that he would say, don't make the mistake to believe that forward progress is a finished process. And I think that's where we have become consumed. We think that because we have made this forward progression that it is, in fact, the finished process, and it is not. While progress has been made in an effort to correct the racial inequities that we are facing in this life, we have, in fact, plagued this nation since its inception. And we cannot, in fact, allow the signs of progress to cause us to slow down 
our forward movement. We must, in fact, I believe he would tell us, continue to pursue the dream of society where people of every ethnicity can have a level playing field to build their lives toward their God-given potential. And that's what we do not have, and that's what it seems apparent that most folk really don't care about, whether or not everybody has a playing field. Give everybody a playing field, and I guarantee you'll see changes, because when you stop and think about it as it relates to in different communities that we live in, I want the same thing that a white guy would want in his community. Keep your grass cut. Don't park your car in the yard and everything else. Oh, I, I forgot I was sitting next to Eli. So we want the same thing, but we don't know each other. So give everybody the same playing field and watch what transpires. So I think he would want to say, give everybody that opportunity so that they can move to the next level. And there's going to be a role for repentance in that as well. And so, uh, Steve, on that, on that thought of repentance... In what ways have you seen repentance happen, lay a groundwork for healing? What areas do you think churches in Memphis can help in leading, repenting, moving forward? Well, there was a time when Memphis was known as Memphis the Beautiful, but you realize that it wasn't very beautiful for a lot of people. A lot of people were going through a great deal of difficulty and hardship. I grew up just north of here in Dyersburg, Tennessee. My wife grew up. She's a native Memphian. In fact, she was Little Miss Christmas Bell in the Christmas Parade, all right? But uh, she uh, has told me a lot about what happened. She lived in Frazier, grew up in Frazier. And uh, I think that repentance is not only something you say, it's something you show. It's not just words, but it's work. And so I think it's a, it's a turning from running away from Memphis, somebody talked about white flight, it's a, it's a turning away from that and going back into the city. I came here, Cole, you know a little bit about my story, most of you guys do. I followed uh, Bear Bryant, I mean Adrian Rogers at uh, Bellevue Baptist Church. And uh, for the first two years, those are the toughest years of my life. I came from Alabama, my whole church was white in Alabama. I came to Memphis, which was uh, half ethnic, besides white, and, and I didn't really know what the Lord wanted. The first two years of my ministry here were the hardest years of my life, trying to follow Dr. Rogers. But about that second year, uh, Ed, you, you were there when it happened just about. Uh, Ed and I have been friends. I, I know all these guys, great guys on this panel, including yourself. But uh, I, I had a, a come-to-Jesus moment when I realized that God was shifting my ministry to love this city. I believe that God doesn't just call a pastor to a church. I believe he calls a pastor to a city. And I think that what we need to understand is that God loves everybody in that city and God has people in that city, uh, just like he told Paul, I have many people in this city. And that was before they were saved. And so so God began to lay on my heart that verse out of uh, Jeremiah 29. I can remember telling Ed about it one day that God laid on my heart, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent to you and pray to the Lord on its behalf or in its welfare, you'll have welfare. He's talking about Babylon. Pray for Babylon. Mm-hmm. And the Jews couldn't handle that. And a lot of people why, pray for Memphis. And so I go to my leadership and I say, we need to love this city. And one of my best deacons says, nobody loves Memphis. And when he said that, I said, 
And this before I said, but Jesus does, right? And that's where Jesus loves Memphis came from. And so we started finding a need and meeting it, finding a hurt and healing it. And I don't want, it's changed, uh, that, that one ministry has changed the trajectory of my life and our church. And we now, we've done 41 quarterly projects for the last 10 years. We've uh, had 1,300 projects. We've had hundreds of people get saved. We've started a uh, mobile dental clinic for the last nine years, has given away $4 million worth of free dental care, treated over 17,000 people, not charging them a penny, and 1,700 people have been saved because of that. Because we don't, look at me, we, we don't want just to make Memphis a better place from which to go to hell. We want Memphis, we want to serve Memphians, but we want to do that to get a platform to share the gospel. And then the other thing that we've done is my wife, and I wish she could speak on this herself, uh, she started a ministry called Arise to Read. And you can go to that Arise and the number two and then read. She has trained over 2,000 volunteers to teach second graders how to read. If a child is not reading on grade level by the fourth grade, they have 60% of them will either be in prison and or poor the rest of their lives. But you can break the poverty cycle if you teach a child to read by the fourth grade. 89% will graduate from high school. If they graduate from high school, they get a better job, come out of the poverty cycle. All of that came out of Bellevue Loves Memphis from God, changing my heart to realize I'm not just called to Bellevue, I'm called to Memphis. And I want you to know I love this city. I love all of you guys. And I think that we're, in, in some regards, working toward a better Memphis than was here 50 years ago. Jason, you're five years in to what we hope and pray will be a long and Amen. fruitful service in our city. You came from Nashville. Yes. So Nashville has civil rights history. A lot of the uh, early lunch counter sit-ins happened there. You've grown up in a world uh, post-Dr. King in some ways. At least uh, uh, you're younger than me, and I was born a year after his assassination. And so you and I have grown up in a world and a church uh, after Dr. King. What would you say, from your perspective, is the biggest impediment to racial justice and unity in the church and also the world after Dr. King's death? Well, you can easily take that question in two parts about racial justice and the unity of the church. Uh, but I would have to echo the sentiments of uh, Dr. King, who um, <laughs> said to us that history will record that the greatest tragedy of this um, era of social transition is not the strident clamor of bad people, but the appalling silence of good people. And I think that's probably one of the challenges uh, of the church. One of Dr. King's mentors, Howard Thurman, uh, in his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, uh, raised this question, what does the religion of Jesus have to say to those whose backs are up against the wall? And so the church has to break its silence. Uh, we can't uh, remain um, in our pulpits, within our four walls, um, and deny what's happening around us. Um, and so if um, there's any greater impediment the church has is that we have been silent about some of the most important issues such as economic justice, um, the mass incarceration. Uh, we've been silent uh, in many cases as it relates to 
um, officer-involved shootings of unarmed African-Americans. Um, and so the church has to begin to break its silence if we're going to achieve racial justice and unity in the body of Christ. And that these issues affect all churches. Yes, yes. Yeah. But that goes back, uh, Cole, to the point that if there are no relationships, I can stay in my church and never say a word because I don't have to interact day to day with these challenges. I can cut my TV on, cut it off. We've had white flight in our city, so much so that people have moved as far east as they can go. Now, the only thing you can do is turn around and go back downtown. And that's what they're doing. And gentrification, we see that. I mean, these are things that are right in our face. Uh, What used to be where uh, they called it the projects, the uh, subsidized housing, uh, where a lot of strong leadership of African-American community came out. All that's wiped away. So where, and now it's just a system that we are in now. And so you can stay in your church and do your, do your, do your Jesus, you know, and, and never bother about the situation that you see on television. But it's only when people wake up and recognize that I've got to be involved. What difference, what a difference it makes when an influential pastor and his leadership, but the deal is a lot of people don't have the liberty to be able to say what they know they need to say in these churches. So it's a problem. As a result, that's what we have 50 years later after Dr. King. And and it takes intentionality because we, Memphis still remains one of the most segregated cities in the country. Mm -hmm. Not too many years ago, we were second or third most segregated cities in the country. What they, how they determine that is you'd look at a demographic area and you'd pull out the, the, the demographics of that small area, that grid, and it'd be mostly the same kind of people. So, uh, and that still remains very much the same here. There's some integrated areas, but not that much. So you've got to be intentional about what you do. You can't wait for it to happen. You have got to, you've got to seek out friendship. You've got to care. You've got to involve your family. I mean, the family thing is a huge deal. It's a huge thing. We have got to make sure that our children, our grandchildren, live in a mosaic life because that's, that's the kingdom life, really. And to segue with what you're talking about, younger generations, there's a lot of hope there for change because of how the younger generation, and you interact with a lot of younger generations in this city. What's their perspective on Dr. King's legacy? You know, I I was 13. I was a 13-year-old junior high school student at Colonial Junior High when Dr. King was killed here. And it, um, it... I didn't know any black folk. I mean, I, was, I didn't know any black folk. I didn't know any black folk in, uh, in elementary, junior high, and there was a black typing teacher at Overton High School when I finally went to high school. So, I mean, I was totally, totally away from any involvement with anyone. And my life, my life took a complete flip when I saw the city for what it was. I knew half the city, but I didn't know the whole city. And my life changed. I really think, I'll be honest with you about young people today, I used, to, I used to feel like I was a leader of young people. You know what I'm doing now? I'm following some young people. I'm trying to follow them now. I'm trying to be an encouragement to them, but they're, they're running hard. I mean, you look at events around our country, you most especially look at this tragedy in Parkland. You look, um, uh, you, you, know, you look in our own city, our Black Lives Matter. A lot of that stuff is millennials and young people. 
uh, the, when, the, when the statues came down. Uh, those were, that was a, those were millennials that were very involved in that and, and young people. So I'm, I think, I have, I have great hope. I'm a volunteer for your wife at one of the elementary schools. I, I read to two second graders in a school not too far from here once a week. I'm so encouraged. Man, they're great people. They're great people. They're going to be great people. And so I'm encouraged, but we've got to encourage them as adults. We've got to encourage them and pray for them and stand with them. Absolutely. Here's an open question. Anyone wants to take it? I've been to the mountaintop speech, one of the greatest um, moments of oratory in American history. Fifty years after that speech and his assassination, what would Dr. King be pleasantly surprised by and what would he be most disappointed in? I think Dr. King would be pleasantly surprised uh, with um, the coalition we formed, the Memphis Christian Pastors Network. Um, I think a group like that didn't coalesce until after the assassination. And 50 years later, I'm encouraged uh, to be in partnership with these brothers and others around this city. And I think that would be something he'd be pleasantly surprised by. I think the most disappointing thing is uh, 50 years later, uh, many of the economic and social realities that existed then um, still exist now. Uh, we've resegregated our schools along economic lines. Uh, we um, are still struggling with paying municipal workers what they deserve. Um, and so I think he's going to be disappointed with um, what brought him here to Memphis and what caused him to die here um, is still the reality 50 years later. Just the, de the devastating grind of poverty, it would, would break his heart in, in, in a nation that is so very wealthy, and it breaks my heart too, and should break our hearts. 44.7% of the children in Memphis live in poverty. That's the highest in the nation, 44.7%. And when you live in poverty, you can't say to somebody in poverty, well, just get up. That's like telling the man in the miry clay to get up. Right. Uh, Jesus had to come down and pull me out of the miry clay. I don't know about y'all, yeah. but uh, yeah. Yeah. And so we have to be Jesus. We have to be Jesus to them and go in and help them. Uh, one, there is one book, grade appropriate level in, in, in the home of 300. There's only one book per 300 children that live in poverty that's on the grade reading level in an average middle age uh uh, level, there are 13 grade appropriate, age appropriate books per child. 13 per child in the median, uh, but, but then in the poverty, one book for every 300. Wow. That's got to end. We're, I know y'all's church, we're all giving them books. We gave away 10,000 books last year. We're giving 20,000 books away this year. We're education and evangelism. Say it a thousand times. That's, that's the way out of poverty, get somebody free in their heart through salvation, win them to Jesus, and then teach them to read. If they can read by the third grade, if they can learn to read by the third grade, they will read to learn the rest of their lives. I think, I want to piggyback on that, because I think one of the challenges, there was a poverty report released about Memphis 50 years after King, and um, it showed two things. Number one thing it showed 
was that the educational gains for African-Americans are proven that we, there are more educated African-American gains. However, if you're going to speak about racial justice and leveling the playing field, although we had attained more education, the median income of an African-American in Memphis compared to the median income of African-Americans around the country is still 15% lower. And then for the median income of white Americans, white Americans in Memphis earn 15% more than the median income of white Americans across the country. So there's this increasing uh, gap. gap when it comes to income and wage. But so education is not the only uh, way out. I'm struggling now to, with that report to say to a student, go get your education in order to make a living. But the truth is you only make a living that's still going to be less than your counterpart who's, who's white. So um, I think we've got to dig a little bit deeper. I've been encouraged by First Tennessee, um, who knows we've been in the fight for 15. Um, and uh, they made the decision as a company to say, we're going to pay our workers no less than $15 an hour. So it is possible. We have great challenges, although we have big issues when it comes to poverty at the top of the poverty index. But as Dr. Gaines was sharing, we're also the number one most generous city in the country. So it gives me hope, but I think we have to, to um, affirm the realities that we're facing um, and deal with them at face value. In the time we've got left, let's, let's take this. It's an open question, and each of you respond to it. If you could just take one problem in Memphis today, and you could solve it, what would that problem be, and what's, what's the impediment, what's the biggest thing standing in the way of that particular problem? Uh, it, it's a very layered thing for me. Of course, mm -hmm. as a believer, I, I think I want to see people come to faith. I, that, that's the first thing. But if I, that's, too e that's too easy an answer. But that's very important. But it's, uh, it's triangulated with uh, education and jobs and poverty, it's, it's all those things. I, I, I guess, I, I think a job, I think jobs is huge for, for us here. Um, pay, jobs that pay living wage uh, would make a huge difference, I think, in our city. And I think we need to be a part of, uh, of that, too. I would, um, I would concur. I mean, really, all of us are preachers and ministers. We know salvation is just at the top, but after past that or uh, jobs in the city, the, the poverty rate in the city of Memphis. Uh, now, the impediment to that, again, goes back to my key word, relationships, dying to ourselves, voting for things that you may not normally vote for. The kind of people that we put in office has to do with a lot of the decisions that are being made in our city. So you may have to vote uh, antithetical to what you normally would have voted. What's the big picture here? What's the big win for everybody? Overall, long-term, is what I think. So those are some of the hindrances to what we really want. And if we continue to remain in our own personal citadels, we will remain right where we are. And this, not, this becomes nothing but another event. And we got, can't just have, continue to have events. But if we're going to make a difference, that's going to only come through relationships, developing these relationships, getting to know your brothers and sisters. I mean black, white, Asian, other so that we can um, forge ahead with 
of making Memphis as which makes our nation even better. I would ditto and piggyback everything that's been said. I think out of those relationships, we'll discover um, our common challenges and that which we can rally around. Um, so I think we are beyond the day of just doing a pulpit swap yeah. and then going back to the business as usual. Yeah. I think we're now at a point where um, I not only have to build a relationship with you, but that relationship has to uh, push me in some ways that allow me to see the world in a way that um, I don't normally see it uh, because I've uh, taken the time to be empathetic and sympathetic with where you are. And I, I have to allow you to do the same to push me in some uncomfortable ways. Uh, but beyond the sentimentality, we've then got to translate that into some action around issues and hurts uh, that we find common and that are impacting all of us. I believe that uh, one of the best things any church can do is to make your church not only a place of ministry, but a base of ministry from which you're going out into the community. And I think when you do that, people will want to come to your church. We baptize African-Americans and Latinos and Asians every Sunday at Bellevue, every Sunday. And our church is looking more like heaven and Memphis every Sunday. So I would just encourage you to go out into your community. And I still, I mean, everything that's been said, even with jobs, I still think that you have to have an educated workforce. I think teaching kids how to read is just absolutely the foundation upon which you build everything else aside from the gospel. Oh, let me say this. I think one thing would be good for some congregations who are interested in impacting the community, rather than just putting a white church in a black community, begin to undergird and do due diligence with other ministries that are out there that are working, but they don't have the resources. Right. Yeah. You don't have the resources. That goes back to economics. They, have, they don't have the money. So you got wealthy, affluent people, or you just have money. It makes a difference when you have the resources. And to assume that congregations would not be doing some of these other things, right. if the resources were there, they would be doing them as well. So if you really want to impact, let's put our money and make sure that there are checks and balances. But you work this. Who better to influence somebody in your own community than people of your own color? That's bottom line, to get it started. And then we begin to build up. That's just another way and another approach that we could perhaps look at. And I want to promise the bishop that I'm going to cut my grass and not go park my car in my yard. I'm about to stop that today, man. Okay, don't do that no more, uh, Eli. We thank you for coming to our city. Uh, this, to look out as we get to over all of you, is a blessing that you've come to our city uh, to be part of what Jesus said when he said, I appoint you to go and bear fruit that lasts. And our prayer for you is that you will go away from this city, this place, and that you will bear that kind of fruit to the glory of God. Thank you all for coming. Would you thank our panelists for being here with us? Thanks for listening to the ERLC podcast. To subscribe, visit ERLC.com or find us on iTunes or Google Play. And don't forget to join us next week as we hear from a panel of people who were a part of the civil rights movement 50 years ago.